This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi and welcome to Health Check. I'm your host Joyce Teo and I'm a senior health correspondent with The Straits Times. Singapore is experiencing a huge wave of COVID-19 with cases rising fast and furious and deaths happening every day. So in this episode, we will look at the seemingly high daily COVID deaths that we're seeing now. My special guest is Associate Professor Su Li Yang, an expert on infectious diseases at the NUS Sosui Hock School of Public Health. Hi, Liang. Thanks for coming on Health Check. Hello, Joyce. Hi. So we're seeing, you know, 10 or more COVID deaths now each day. Yesterday was 15, right? And I know some people, um, particularly the older adults with underlying conditions, they're extremely worried about this. Mm, can you just, you know, tell us what is happening? Thanks, Joyce. This is a really depressing question to start off, I must say. I think we have to remember that the virus is like a simple machine with a singular function, and that's to spread and make more copies of itself. And once more people come into contact with each other, it will spread. Our current restrictions, which are neither perfectly complied with nor perfectly enforced, are insufficient for reducing the transmission rate or the reproductive number to less than one. So that's a really long-winded way to say that, yes, this is what we should expect perhaps for several weeks more until this current wave peaks and falls again. At the population level, a small minority of infected persons will become very sick and a fraction of those will die. This sounds really very callous and unfeeling, but it's a scenario that has played out in almost like a metronomic manner in every country worldwide. So Singapore now has um, 364 deaths, I think, which works out to about 64 deaths per million population, and we can certainly expect this number to continue to go up over the next year, especially over the next few weeks. But at this point, it remains one of the lowest death rates in the world, if that's any consolation. I think of the countries that keep accurate track of COVID cases and deaths, only South Korea, China, and New Zealand are ahead of us, and the last two only because they have still stuck to a zero-COVID strategy. So, Leon, you said we can expect to see people dying from COVID every day in the year ahead. Do you see the numbers going down? I think as the number of infected cases go down, the, the deaths will also go down. As I mentioned, at a population level, it's a certain fraction that will fall ill and die from COVID-19. So, if the total number of cases falls, the number of severe illnesses and deaths will likewise fall. Right, so we might see maybe one or two, so a bit lower than now. Then. That's certainly the case, yes. Right, but with more cases going up, there would be natural immunity, right? That's correct. And in a way, that's also the reason why the, the waves will reach a peak and come to an end, because the virus will run out of people to infect easily after a while. Right, but you know, we've been talking about vaccination and you know, that's interesting because since you mentioned this, like um, the UK is highly vaccinated but seeing high COVID cases. And I think you mentioned Denmark and Norway as well, right? That's correct. So um, I think this is rather depressing. But every country that has declared a freedom day of some sort has seen their cases go up. Um, I think the first one of these was Israel several months ago. But even Denmark and Norway, where the vaccination rates are quite similar to ours, once they drop the COVID-19 restrictions, which they did recently, 
we have seen the number of cases shoot up as well. I think the silver lining is that, um, similar to what we have seen here, in a highly vaccinated population, uh, the fraction of people who become sick enough to require hospitalization or to eventually die is far smaller than before we had the COVID-19 vaccines. And as I mentioned earlier, um, all of these waves of infection will come to an end at some point. More quickly, if there are fewer restrictions and slower, if like us, um, we, we have more restrictions to try and prevent the transmission. Right. So this is the endemic state that we were, um, that we are looking forward to, but not quite expecting, I guess. I think everybody, or rather many people, seem to take the endemic state as like some baseline number of cases that hardly change. But if you look at uh, seasonal flu or even dengue, which is endemic, you can see that there are actually waves, right? the spikes of cases and then the troughs of cases. And this happens naturally, and that really is what endemic COVID-19 will mean as well. Right. So I guess now the concerns, you know, other deaths. Huh? So, I mean, we already know that unvaccinated elderly are at higher risk of dying from COVID, but, you know, some vaccinated elderly are also succumbing to the disease. Um, you know, what do we know about this group then? You know, like specifically what kind of conditions that they have, you know, that can make them more vulnerable to COVID? So actually, the, the strongest risk factor for severe COVID-19 and death still remains age. Uh, the elderly, especially those who are above 80 years of age, have remarkably high risk of dying from COVID-19. That's um, over 10 to 20 percent. Um, and those with chronic health conditions like diabetes, obesity, and heart and lung disease, also those with advanced cancer, they are more likely to develop complications from COVID-19 and die as well. But at the end of the day, this is true for lots of other diseases and infectious diseases. So it's nothing special in that sense. Um, the, the, the key thing is that even in these groups of people, being vaccinated reduces the risk of severe illness and death very strongly. I think the Ministry of Health published yesterday that um, the risk of dying was about eight times lower in general amongst the fully vaccinated individuals. And for the elderly, this is certainly more than 10 times lower risk compared to those who are not vaccinated. Why? That's true. But diabetes, you know, hypertension, these are very, very common. And I know, um, you know, of like uh, older people, they actually, they're vaccinated, but they don't dare to go out. And I think it's worse, right, if you limit your social interactions. Yeah, just how should they react to all this news, right? And, uh, you know, understand the risk that they have. I think this is not easy advice to give um, because in a sense there is a balance between staying home and keeping everyone away to avoid the risk of COVID-19 uh, and going out and meeting people which has uh, social benefits um, and also going out to exercise for instance. Um, I think it's, it's good to keep things in moderation so even somebody who is old for instance should well, every now and then to have a walk, uh, just avoid the crowded places and wear masks properly when when outside. I think that's that's quite key to the situation we have at present until things change. 
Right, but you mentioned that death is going to continue for a while. So when you say things change, do you mean when the wave is um, less serious? When the cases are a bit That's lower? Right. Yes. And of course, even at this point, we're still trying to vaccinate the remaining group of people who have so far been unable to or refused to be vaccinated. So even if we can move that needle a little bit, um, it can change the numbers of deaths that can occur in the long run. Right. So it means for the next few weeks, say four to five weeks, um, older people should preferably not interact as much. Say, I mean, if you play mahjong, you're going to sit quite close to, you know, the next person or just to everybody, in fact, at the table. Yeah, I think it's quite difficult, right, to check with your mahjong partners whether they're all vaccinated before you allow them into the house. <laughs> but maybe that's what has to be what has to be done. Would it be safe to play the game without mask on? I think it's safer to say that the risk is much less because we we know that those who are vaccinated um, can also be infected and pass the virus to others, even though that risk is much lower. Um, and those who mm-hmm. have been boosted, for instance, uh, or those vaccinated people who have been previously infected, then they're actually also at much lower risk of being infected for several months. So if you like what you're hearing so far, please subscribe to the Health Chat Podcast for free on your favourite smartphone apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating. So how do you see the future with Delta then? I mean, now there is this another variant coming up as well. I think it's the nature of viruses to evolve. So we will um, see variants of Delta or other COVID-19 variants coming up over the next few years. And that's in some ways uh, inevitable, right? We see the same much faster fashion with influenza, for example. I think if the mm-hmm. vaccines still offer protection and they should for a while, then that would be fine. But it may well be that in the future we will need to have uh, vaccines that are upgraded or updated for the current variants, which is what we do for influenza, or else we will need boosters every year, for instance, depressing as that sounds. Yes. So how do you see the, the future in, in the next year ahead? I find it hard to, to predict because, you know, most of our predictions have kind of gone wrong. <laughs> yeah. But uh, from know. what we know, I think the <laughs> likelihood of a lifelong immunity post-infection or post-booster is extremely unlikely. So probably we'll end up having we need uh, boosters like with uh, flu jabs every year or so for, for the foreseeable future. Right. But for those who have been infected, um, how long will their natural immunity last? We don't quite have the data for those who have completed their vaccinations and are infected, except to think that the infection then acts as a booster but previously when we had people who were infected prior to the availability of vaccines, we realized that um, their protection against COVID-19 will last for at least six to nine months. Right? So in the migrant mm-hmm. worker population that's been tested extensively after their big outbreak um, from April to August, 
um, they were very well protected for the next several months. And this data has similarly been reproduced overseas as well. So they can't get infected for the next six to nine months? I think we don't quite have the data yet, but um, it looks very likely that they will be protected against infection, not just severe disease and death for the next six months at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's in, in, in parts the reason why um, the current wave will come to an end. Like, because otherwise, we just keep uh, infecting people over and over again as they recover from the prior infection. But for a while, they will be right. immune to COVID-19. And during that time, the virus kind of runs out of people to infect and the wave will come down. I see. Okay, that's good news, which, which is what we need. I think the situation looks is depressing mm. in the sense that it never seems to come to an end. But I, I think compared I to last year, for instance, we are in a much right. better place than before. So we can still look forward to the future with more optimism. You're the infectious disease expert, right? I mean, how do you, how do you feel, right? Like every day, you know, do you get tired of it or? We, we get used to it. Of course, I get tired of it just like everyone else, right? It'll be nice to yeah. travel and not wear masks and to, to dine out in bigger groups. But I think we understand that we have to do our bit to try and keep the infection rates low so that the hospitals and healthcare system can cope with this current wave of cases. But in the distant past, we have survived worse like smallpox, uh, cholera, and other, other big outbreaks. So I think we will get by this one as well. What about children? Uh, you know, now in the US, they're talking about that. And Europe, um, I think they've decided they, I think it's the UK, some countries have decided they're going to just do one dose because of the side effects. What are your views on vaccinating children? Do we actually need it considering they're at lower risk of disease? I think this applies to the mRNA vaccines because of the concern that the second dose seems to come with a higher risk of side effects like, you know, the heart inflammation, myocarditis and pericarditis. And also because mm-hmm. children generally don't get bad COVID the way elderly people do. So I think based on those risk-benefits uh, calculations, European countries have suggested just one dose of the vaccine in teenagers. Um, US FDA, I think, just licensed or approved the Pfizer vaccine for those aged 5 to 11. Um, I think there's still a role to think about for vaccinating children because if we protect children, then we also indirectly protect the adults. It tends to be children that spreads a lot of the respiratory viruses like the uh, flu and the common cold uh, in the past. Thanks for your time, Dion. Thanks very much, Joyce. And it's a pleasure to be invited back again. Good to speak with you again. Hopefully we'll have better news next time. Well, that's a wrap for Health Check, a podcast series by The Straits Times. Don't forget to subscribe to us for free on your favourite smartphone apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Search for Straits Times Health Check, like us and give us a rating. Thank you for listening. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.